Hello and welcome to episode 3 of Feckin' Metal. My name is Fergal Trainer, and I am the single host of this, unlike the regular Feckin' Check-In. And I can't believe we're at episode 3 already. Um, so as you will have gathered in the first couple of episodes, this is a guest-based format podcast. So each week I talk to a different guest, be it a musician or a friend of mine. And in this case, it's a podcaster. So this week, my very special guest is Nesbitt, the former host of Talking Maiden and the current host of the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast. Welcome to the show, Nesbitt. Hey, how are you doing? I'm pretty good, thanks, and you? I'm doing great. Good stuff. It's about half four in the afternoon here, just to set the scene for the listener. It's about 1 p.m. there in uh, Newfoundland. Yeah, three and a half hours difference. As we, as, as we discussed before, there's the three and a half hour time difference. Um, so yeah, that's that's still I still find it difficult to get my head around that. It's still a different bit of subtraction than your regular time difference. So uh, yeah. that, that half hour throws you off every single time. I know, I spent my whole life subtracting half hours from things. <laughs> yeah. But today we're going to talk about something a bit different. So obviously we had you on the feckin' check-in not so long ago, actually. Um, and we talked about your podcast at the time, which was still current. It had yet to air its final episode, I think, or it was about to air its final episode, Talking Maiden. But obviously now you have a new podcast, the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast. Um, but for this episode, we will talk about both of those for just a brief period, obviously. Uh, but we're going to go through your top five, as requested by me, your top five hard rock or heavy metal albums, which you've chosen in advance. Yeah, it wasn't an easy decision. <laughs> I, I can't imagine it was. For somebody who loves statistics and lists as much as you and, <laughs> and narrowing things down and using formulas to come up with things like that, I, I can't imagine that was easy on you at all. Yeah, there's a lot of... Uh, I went through a lot of potential albums to come up with these five. So, Was there a formula involved or a spreadsheet? Please tell me there was. No, there was... Like, I didn't want to go with like what I think are the five best. Because you said your favorites. So I picked five of my favorites, and these albums, they kind of mean something to me. Like, there's so many albums I could have included, like, you know, but I kind of went, these are, like, favorites that I think are, like, classic from beginning to end, uh, and ones that really stood the test of time and never really aged. I like they, I love all these albums as much now as I did when I first heard them, so that's kind of what went into the decision. That sounds like a good uh, method of selection. Uh, yeah, I'd be the same. If you asked me to name five, I would struggle. I would t- I'd say things like ACDC, Back in Black, and a timeless album, but does it make yeah. it into the top five? I don't know, you know? And then, like, even just with the same band, Highway to Hell, like, those two albums for me would be something that never age and are evergreen, I'd like to say, uh, to describe them. But, like, would they make it into the top five? It's very, very tricky to get something narrowed down to five, so I appreciate the effort there on your part of narrowing it down. Um, and I don't necessarily think these are the five best they're just favorite. Like, even some of these bands that I'm going to pick, the album that I picked isn't necessarily what I think is their best album, but it's my favorite album. I get you completely. And sentimental reasons come into it. Yes, that's a lot of it. A time and a place and, and where you were in your life, as you will have heard on the first episode of Feckin' Metal, like me and Daly talking about albums that meant a lot to us. And, and we mentioned albums that were pivotal in our musical evolution. Like So I would use all of those criteria as well myself if I were selecting uh, top fives, definitely. It's not just all about the, this is categorically or objectively the best music this band has ever released. Like that, That's not the most important aspect, I don't think. No, I agree, yeah. Okay, so uh, you're a busy man still. Um, so Talking Maiden has finished, obviously. Um, well, for the time being, anyway. For so. now, yeah. Yeah. So what was it? 141 episodes? Was that it? The final. I think that's right. Yeah, 141. I think if I when I look in my dashboard at the stats, I think it was uh, it adds up to almost 150 hours of talking about Iron Maiden over three years. So. Well, that makes a bit, that made sense uh, based <laughs> on the fact that most of them were about an hour, but then some of them went a bit over. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. Um. So I have to ask you: Do you miss Talking Maiden? Um. Sort of. I think what I miss the most is like I'm in my 40s. I got small kids. You know, getting out for a pint with the guys. You know, once or twice a month, I'll get out with the guys for a beer. Mm. When I was doing Talking Maiden with Josh, it was every Friday. Or not, we didn't record every Friday, but at least once a week, we'd get together. We'd have that beer. And so for three years, I saw him like every week. Mm. And now we're kind of done. And now I see Josh kind of like I see the other guys. He's out every now and then. So I kind of miss the regular getting together, which I don't know. What, what I was always intrigued by, and maybe I'm asking a personal question here, you can tell me to piss off, but um, when you would meet up with Josh to do your podcast and you'd have a beer, uh, like, would you hang out with each other afterwards or would you be like, oh, well, that recording's done, okay, see ya? <laughs> yeah, usually he would show up and we'd have a beer and hang out and talk, hang out for like an hour. And then right. we'd go down in the basement, then we'd record. And then when we're done, sometimes we'd stick, you know, have another beer, depending. Yeah. So, so it, was, it was a social occasion as well as the work that the podcast entails as well. It was. There's like an hour of recording in the middle of like three hours of hanging out, talking mm. about who knows what. But I know it's funny. You'd get together to talk about Iron Maiden and in, you know, we'd have a beer before we started recording and one of us would start talking about something and it'd be like, whoa, whoa, stop, stop, save it, save it. <laughs> don't yeah, yeah, don't yeah. waste all the good conversation. <laughs> well, I, I just did the same with you just before yeah. this podcast. <laughs> and I often do the same with Toomey as well. We'll like, we, we've been recording remotely for a long time, not just because of lockdown, just because of circumstantial reasons. And uh, we'll be, we'll go into one of the topics and we're like, oh, hold on a second. Let's just yeah. save that now for the episode. Because you, you don't want to lose the spontaneity that the conversation may have that you won't, right. you won't capture again, as, as has been discussed on the Feck and Check as well. Um, right. So Iron Maiden, uh, Talking Maiden is on hold or, you know, yeah. it's, it's in, what did I say? It's in abeyance at the moment. Yeah, it's kind of on <laughs> hiatus, I guess. On, on hiatus, yeah. yeah. But it's there uh, if anyone wants to listen to it. Talking, www.talkingmaiden.com or iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. And I mean, this should go without saying, but I can't recommend it enough. Of all the Iron Maiden podcasts out there, and there are several, and there are certainly several in more recent months and years, uh, to me, it's always been the best because of uh, the deep dives and because of the banter between you and Josh. And none of the other podcasts have that level of detail or have that level of camaraderie, I'd say, uh, that yours had, which made it unique. Cool. That's good to hear. Okay. (laughs) One other thing I want to say, though, right? This just came to me. So um, I was thinking about the level of detail you used to go into in Talking Maiden. And obviously you were famous for doing deep dives. Uh, You would go off and read books and you would buy books to read for a particular topic. Um, And one thing that always stuck with me was you you had the foresight back in 2006, I think it was, to download Kevin Shirley's website blogs and saved them to your computer. <laughs> and you referenced these on episodes of Talking Maiden about eight years later. What? Where did that foresight come from, or why, why did you do that at the time? Well, in 2006 is when he posted them, but I downloaded them after that. But they, but they had since gone off the internet. So when did you download them then? I don't know. I just started... Oh, it was... Um, I can't remember. It was before we started the podcast, but not too far before i just kept every time i found anything interesting about iron maiden i started just kind of downloading and growing this like library of like reference stuff for some reason and then it just i don't know when i did the podcast you know i have a room full of iron maiden stuff iron maiden posters and or not iron maiden posters iron maiden books books on heavy metal and i've been like that with bands all the time so like deep diving on bands is something i just kind of always did and then all of a sudden we had a podcast and I was like, oh, this is like an outlet 
I wasn't wasting my time after all. <laughs> it's like where hard work, or sorry, what did I say? Luck is where hard work meets preparation. Uh, right. So uh, kind of happened to you. Um, so yeah, it's, okay. So it's kind of like a digital scrapbook or something like that. You, you were like yeah. keeping things that were of interest to you, right? I just find that quite interesting because like, I don't know many people who would do that. And by the nature of what it is, like an online blog by a producer, it probably won't stay up on the internet forever. So it was, it was a good thing that you did have that because there was quite a lot of nice information in those blogs i think they were recording uh, a matter of life and death at the time or it was about the time a matter of life and death was going to be released or something like that yeah he did that for a few albums so right okay a few of them. yeah but i've also downloaded like digital scans of magazine articles and you know i had i have a document that has like all these articles about the equipment they used and on live tours and stuff so i'm sure you do <laughs> <laughs> sure you do <laughs> All for the betterment of Talking Maiden. But of course, <laughs> that's not your current gig in the heavy metal podcasting scene, of which you now are a core member, by the way, whether you uh, realize that or not. Uh, <laughs> two heavy metal podcasts under your belt. Now you're, of course, doing the... It's it's just called Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast. That's the name of it, isn't it? Yeah, the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast. The Night Demon Heavy... Okay, so I've listened to the first four or so episodes, um, and I found it quite interesting, uh, especially the episode where they were talking about the City Hell uh, thing. Right. Where uh, you know, with the statue and all that type of stuff. I thought that was quite interesting. I don't want to spoil it, actually, but lots of interesting information there uh, about uh, Ventura, California, and politics and all that type of stuff. And the things that I wouldn't have thought would have entered into uh, Night Demon's lyrics, really, as being a kind of a more uh, casual fan who knows yeah. the first two albums quite well, but nothing more than that. I certainly haven't deep-dived or deep-divin on them. <laughs> deep-dove. Deep-dove. <laughs> is that the right word? Deep-dive. isn't the word. I don't know where I came up with that. Um, but yeah, uh, so there was really interesting information there. And then uh, you had the episode which focused on In Trance with Yuli John Roth and how Jarvis pursued Yuli or Uli uh, to participate in a, a live version of In Trance by the Scorpions on stage with Night Demon. So... That's that's all kind of um, like it, you go very very in depth into a particular topic. I, I would say even more so than on Talking Maiden. Yeah, well, on Talking Maiden, it it was it was really fun, but there's a lot of work trying to find the information behind stuff. So if you're talking about a song, it was like googling old magazine articles and trying to find interviews from that era and trying to like pull a line or two out of it where someone in the band would maybe say something about the meaning behind a song. Mm. But now, if a you know you pick a random song. I go right to the guys in the band and I'm like, you know, I basically, whatever the topic is, I'll interview the guys in the band and use, you know, sound clips from that to kind of, you know, as I go through the the song or the album or whatever we're talking about, I can kind of drop in sound clips of them talking about, from the interviews, talking about whatever the topic is. And I kind of put it together that way. But it's kind of cool because you can get right to the heart of it and you're not always like, maybe it means this, maybe it means that. You can be like... I know, what I can the ask fuck Jarvis. does it mean? Yeah, <laughs> what does, what it mean, does this Jarvis? lyric mean? And there's a couple of times where I'm like, go through the lyrics and tell me what each line means. And he does it. And I'm like, okay, that's cool. Because I can yeah. actually get to the heart of it. And then you can interview people like, um, people that, if you're talking about a, a an, like a historic concert that they did, a bunch of different fans that were at the concert, I can interview them and bring them in. Or like producers, yeah. people that are involved in like, the, the artists from like the singles and the the album covers and stuff so it's, it's very thorough and in-depth it's really cool and you actually it's had fun. the guy from you had the guy from Sarah Thungle who worked in City Hall in Ventura right. California uh, to talk about that episode that's like 
bizarre level of, of accessibility. <laughs> yeah, it's weird for me to be able to like get access to some of these people. But uh, yeah, Night Demon, I mean, they're very connected in like that metal scene. So, mm. you know, getting put in touch with people that I never normally would think I'd be able to have a conversation with is pretty cool. Yeah. Well, I said yeah. previously, I think Jarvis Leatherby is the most, or the busiest man in rock. Uh, he's, he has his finger in so many different pies with management yeah. and actually being in bands and stuff like that. So I'd say he's a very well-connected man, yeah. Um, okay, right. So that's obviously a weekly podcast. Um, you're on about episode seven or eight now, are you? Uh, yep. Oh, so. no, we're past that. I think we're on, oh, yeah, I think eight. Yeah. Eight, okay. Um, yeah, so if you're a Night Demon fan, or maybe just a heavy metal fan, and you haven't listened to Night Demon yet, but you do like old school heavy metal, that's probably why you're listening to this. You should give it a go. Uh, give Night Demon a listen first, obviously, to give it context, but it's it's Nesbitt doing a deeper dive than he did on Talking Maiden about particular topics <laughs> uh, to do with Night Demon. Uh, that's how I'd explain it. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's about right. Okay. Yeah. Um, all right, so that's Talking Maiden and the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast, okay? But the topic of this podcast today is you are going to choose your top five hard rock or heavy metal albums. So, I mean, this technically is a metal podcast, but, you know, the, the distinction between hard rock and heavy metal is one that's quite blurred. So to me, it's not that big a deal, you know, if it's hard yeah. rock or if it's heavy metal. Well, that's the thing. I picked these five and then I was like, one of them is not really metal. One of them you could argue is, um, I don't like, that's the thing, like the, the, the lines between hard rock and heavy metal, like, or, you know, you pick a hundred people and get them to define what metal is mm. and you're going to get a hundred different definitions, right? Like, do you include hair metal? Exactly. And right. it depends with, I, I think it depends on their personal level of involvement in heavy metal. So I've heard people describing the Foo Fighters as heavy metal before because they'd hear a song like The Pretender and they'd be like, oh, turn off that, turn off that fucking heavy metal. Like, right. <laughs> something like that. But like, you know, uh, a fan who has been listening to heavy metal or hard rock his or her whole life wouldn't deem the Foo Fighters to be heavy metal. But, you know, to the general population, maybe they are. And who, who actually makes the decisions? Nobody, yeah. really. And then there's bands like you know, Skid Row, or, like, I know you love Wasp. Is mm. Wasp hair metal or heavy metal? Yeah, that's a good question. You know question. what I mean? Motley Crue, Van Halen? I don't know. They're kind well, of walking the line. I read an interview with Tommy Lee recently. He's got a solo album coming out. The first couple of tracks are available now. It wasn't really my cup of tea, but um, he mentioned that some of the tracks on the album have been, you know, are quite heavy metal. And he's like, I've been playing heavy metal for 40 fucking years. And I was like, have you? Outside of Motley Crue? <laughs> yeah. when, when did you find the time? <laughs> Yeah, and a lot of people too. If you throw out something and you call it metal, yeah, I, I think they're like, well, to them, metal's like Anthrax, Megadeth, Metallica, Slayer, and I'm like, mm. well, you're really talking about thrash, like that's a genre of metal, like a subgenre, a subgenre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, and I, I find now that the the general population, not the people who think the Foo Fighters are heavy metal, forget about those for a second. But like, if you say to somebody who doesn't lift, listen to metal, they you might say, oh, I like metal, and they'd be like, oh, and they think of all that screaming death metal type of stuff and, right. and i think death metal has all, almost become a byword for heavy metal nowadays be like oh you listen to all that fucking death metal and you're like no i don't actually but you know i like some of it but i listen to like iron maiden who probably sound what did uh, steve harris say in an interview recently i think he said they sound like the osmonds by comparison to some bands <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or something not the osmonds but something like that yeah i know um, what you mean yeah but uh yeah we're, we're kind of going off on a tangent and it's true when i was a kid and i was like before I got into metal, really, I always thought Iron Maiden, and I remember you said this on your episode where you had Kevin on, 
Yeah. Uh, but I remember Iron Maiden, Judas Priest, all these bands. I knew them from like back patches on jean jackets and I just knew the graphics and I was like, holy crap, that stuff must be heavy. Yeah. And then you hear it and you're like, oh, this isn't heavy at all. This is like no. operatic, melodic. I can oh, hum no. this shit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't expecting this. I wasn't expecting to be able to hum it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, anyway. So, okay, that's a bit of a side point. Anyway, maybe that's yeah, a, a topic that's for another day. What is metal? <laughs> Episode 17. Um, but, okay, so we're going to start with uh, the album you've chosen to speak about first, which is one that's very close to my heart and was discussed, uh, I won't say in depth, but it certainly was discussed on a previous episode of Feckin' Metal. So, Nesbitt, what is the first album on your list? So I picked this one because it's, my all-time favorite album okay. is Guns N' Roses, Appetite for Destruction. Excellent choice. Excellent. I think it's the best hard rock album of all time. And I remember when this came out, I was in grade seven. Uh, I think, no, I was in grade eight, I think, before I got into it. But it was one of those albums where it was the first time in my life that, like, everybody I knew, all my friends, everyone in my class were all obsessed with the same album. Hmm. You know what I mean? It was like a thing that we all got into. Yeah. And I don't remember that happening with an album before that. For um, context there, what what is grade eight? What age would you have been then? Um, 14? Okay. Is that right? Okay. Yeah. yeah. No, no, I just wondered because obviously we, we have a different system over here. But, um, okay. Uh, so, yeah, that would have been the same age I got into Guns N' Roses. It's obviously an excellent album, um, but it's not about me today. It's about you. So tell us a bit more about your uh, involvement with Appetite for Destruction. So all your friends were listening to it. You obviously think it's an excellent album, but uh, do you want to speak a bit about why you think it's such a good album and why it made number one on your list and is your all-time favorite album? I don't think there's a weak song. I don't think there's a weak moment. I don't think you can pick like a two-second clip of this album that's like not a 10 out of 10. Uh, every single solo, every single lyric, and the way that Axel like sings every lyric, I don't know. I can't. I can't even think of anything to criticize about this. It's like one of those things. I got it on cassette. I listened to it nonstop. And have you ever had a cassette tape that you've used so much that like it's just black? All the ink is rubbed off it from flipping it. Uh, no, actually, I haven't. <laughs> so I got this on cassette, and I wore it so much that I wore it out so much that like I still have my original cassette. And when you try to play it now, it's all like warbly and stretched. Mm. But I have it in the shed, and I listen to it every now and then. But like I just don't think that there's a weak moment on this on this album. It's it just made such an impact on me. I actually because of this album, when I first saw the Sweet Child of Mine video. Uh, at the end of the Sweet Child of Mine video, there's a part where Axel hits those last few notes. And instead of plucking with his string, with his pick, the last note of the song, he like punches behind the bridge on his Les Paul to get that last note. Slash now. Slash? Did I say Axel? Okay, Slash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I remember I saw that and I was instantly, that second, I was like, I have to learn how to play this on guitar. And I started saving up and I bought a guitar. And that's the first song I learned to play. Sweet Child of Mine. Oh, I didn't even know you were a guitar player. Have you mentioned this I'm not really. (laughs) I play a little bit. I like... But I, this album, too, is like when I bought a guitar, I learned to play Sweet Child of Mine, and I just played along to this CD in my room, because I did get it on CD eventually. And I just, I remember listening, playing the CD on repeat and just playing. Now, I could never play the solos. I'd just play along with, like, the riffs and stuff. But, okay, like, this made such an impact on me. It was like my life revolved around this album for, like, a couple of years. <laughs> okay, good stuff. I, I just would like to go back to your point, and I, I, I'm not trying to pick holes now, but... Yep. You have mentioned you didn't think you don't think there's a weak point on the album. I would offer you the songs uh, 
Anything Goes and think oh, about Oh, don't you. say Anything Goes. That's one of my favorites. <laughs> really? Yeah, I love Anything Goes. Okay, okay. <laughs> because if I were to pick two weak points on the album, those would be the two. Think About You, I think... Uh, That's the Izzy Stradlin song, right? And to me, this is Appetite for Destruction is Guns N' Roses at their peak. Like, this is them peaking. And when Izzy left, I think it was all downhill from there. I think both Illusion albums added up together don't compare to this album. Okay, that's an interesting take. <laughs> that's my take. Um, <laughs> yeah, okay, fair enough. I mean, like, I agree with you on a lot of points. Appetite for Destruction is one of my favorite albums of all time. It would probably make it into my top five as well. Uh, if I were at a concert and Anything Goes came on, I'd probably go for a piss. Um, oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I wouldn't go for a piss. Let's say they were playing Appetite for Destruction, straight through, start to finish. Right. I mean, this is never going to happen. It's ridiculous. And you had to take a piss at some point. And I had to take a piss. So in Iron Maiden, yeah. I'd go at Number of the Beast. Controversial, maybe. But uh, yeah, because, because I've heard the song so many times, I remember you and Josh talking about which song you'd go for a piss at. Um, <laughs> and I was thinking to myself, mine is Number of the Beast for some reason. Uh, I don't know why. I, I, I've never thought it's as good live as it is on CD, actually. That's probably why. But um, anyway, that's a side point. But uh, yeah. yeah, I'd go for a piss during Anything Goes, I reckon. Not like Nothing against it. Maybe you could take yeah. that song off that album and put it on um if you put that song on a aerosmith album or something like it might be one of the best songs on the album to me but in the context of how good all of the rest of the music is on appetite for destruction i'd say it's the weak point for me and think yeah. about you as well and guns and roses is very 70s aerosmith influenced i think like slash mm. always said that rocks was his favorite album i used to be a huge huge aerosmith fan too fan too mm. um this is kind of a side point but I always get, I, anytime I mention Aerosmith, people like roll their eyes and they're like, oh my God, you listen to that crap. And I'm like, no, I'm talking about like- Old Aerosmith. Get your wings, Toys in the Attic, rocks, draw the line. Yeah. Maybe Night in the Ruts and then that's it. Like people think that like Pump is an old Aerosmith album. I'm like, they already had their career, sort of broke up and that was their like kind of comeback. Mm. That's not the stuff I'm talking about. <laughs> well, by Pump, they'd massively changed their sound to much more 80s arena rock, uh, radio-friendly yeah. type of Aerosmith. Yeah, but I know I know those early albums. Yeah, they're yeah. much more rooted in the Rolling Stones and kind of dirty, greasy, kind of heavy rock. Uh, yeah. A much looser type of arrangement as well. Well, um, Guns N' Roses is sort of like the Rolling Stones led to Aerosmith. Aerosmith led to Guns N' Roses, sort of. You know what I mean? I think they really influenced each other that way. Definitely. And so, Axel Rose has uh, said he thought Van Halen were the last real rock band. I mean, it was from an interview at some point, but okay. he said Aerosmith was before Van Halen and Van Halen were the last real rock band, according to him, um, before Guns N' Roses, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> but this album, I just, I don't know, something about this album I just love. It seems like this band, the band always seemed kind of like dangerous and kind yes. of sleazy, like compared to like... Like, I always say, people always have this, like, false narrative of, like, Nirvana came out with Nevermind and killed hair metal. Mm. But I think, like, Appetite for Destruction, it was the first nail in the coffin for hair metal because after this oh. album came out, I think all that hair metal kind of looked kind of silly. You know what I mean? Like, all that hair metal was about, like, partying girls, cars, and, like, mm. compared to the other stuff, this, Axel, that all sounded kind of silly after I heard this album. Not that I didn't love it, because I am a huge hair metal fan, too, but, like, Vince Neil and Brett Michaels are singing about partying. And, yeah. like, Axel's kind of singing about partying, but it's, like, a party that you might get stabbed at. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> a party that you might get stabbed different. at, where you can buy heroin at. <laughs> well, that's the other thing, right? This is a band that's heavily into heroin, and I think that this is when a lot of bands get into heroin, and it kind of works for a while before it starts 
spinning mm. out of control. And this is when the heroin is still working. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? And then mm. Axel kind of takes control of the band after this. But I think this is them at their peak. So. Yeah, that, that's an excellent point about um, Appetite for Destruction being the first nail in the coffin of hair metal. And I don't think I've ever heard anybody actually say that before. So that's interesting to me. And I, I tend to agree with you. All of the other rock from the 80s, which I'm also a fan of, I like all of that shit, does kind of sound quite silly in comparison. And then when you think even after that, like Alice Cooper was coming out with like um, Poison and what's the name of that album? Trash. And that kind of reverted back to old hair metal as if Guns N' Roses never really happened. Um, and I'm a fan of that album as well. But like, yeah. It was him kind of jumping on the bandwagon of like, oh, hey, this heavy rock stuff is popular again. I better put on a leather jacket and, you know, get Desmond Child involved and I'll write a hard rock album. Um, <laughs> but Guns N' Roses stands out on its own or they stand out on their own and they always have. And I definitely agree with you about the point of them being dangerous. Uh, and that wasn't yeah. just a weird like reputation that came out of nowhere. It was from Axl Rose, like being a temperamental fuck and jumping yeah. into the crowd. Well, I've got a... a you know, probably five or six books on Guns N' Roses that I've read. And when you read those and then you read these lyrics, like they're, they seem very authentic, an authentic band. Like they're writing about all this stuff and, you know, where a lot of hair metal, it just seemed kind of like a party rock. I don't know. And again, I love like, I'm not saying anything bad about hair metal because, you know, I have a couple of beers. I love listening to a Poison album. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, this one is just on another level. And I don't know. This album too. Best opener on an album and best closer. So Welcome to the Jungle, I think, is one of the best openers of all time for an album. Agree. And I think Rocket Queen is one of the best closers of all time for an album. I would tend to agree as well. Actually, that's a great point as well. Rocket Queen, especially the last few minutes of Rocket Queen, where Axel goes into his, like, best vocals he's ever had in his career I, yeah. I would say uh, where he starts to I see you standing the only this isn't quite hair metal or heavy metal or anything the only two opening and closing songs that I'd say might be on a level with that is the start and finish of David Bowie the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars it opens with five years and ends with rock and roll suicide do you know that album? Oh, I do I'm a big Bowie <laughs> fan too <laughs> so I think I've always thought of those as the best opening and closing tracks of an album yeah. but I'd say you have an argument there with Guns N' Roses as well um, okay no, that's true so. yeah and One, I saw Guns N' Roses in 2012 but it was Axel's Guns N' Roses that was I don't even remember who was in the band Axel mm. and a bunch of other guys Bumblefoot um, yeah and uh, it was a pretty good show I mean I was in Vegas so it was a you know I was in quite the state by the time they came on stage yeah, yeah, yeah. but then I was supposed to see them this past August the reunion concert mm. at mm. the Rogers Center in Toronto and because of COVID it got postponed till next summer which I still can't see that happening right I've seen Axel's guns three times saw them in 2006 yeah. 2010 and 2012 and I have a controversial opinion because I saw the reunited lineup in 2017 in uh, at Slane um, in Ireland. I would say on a performance standpoint, uh, 2006 and 2012 for Axel were certainly better than when I saw them in 2017. Oh, really? Yeah, vo- vocally certainly, uh, especially in 2006. If you want, it, if you want to see Axel Rose in his prime or his second prime since 1987-88. Google some clips from 2006 where he was skinny and lean and he had those ridiculous looking cornrows. Oh, yes, he, I remember that. He was singing his bollocks off. Like, he, he, he had the, the gravel, the grit, the rasp back in his voice and he's never had it since, really, although I'd say 2012 was the n- next closest he's come. But I think from a vocal standpoint, he was better in those years. But the novelty of seeing Duff and Slash on stage obviously kind of, you know, pipped that a yeah. bit. 
But I, th- I think maybe my favourite Guns N' Roses concert was 2012, controversially enough. So the show that I saw in 2012, it was a really, really great show. It was at the Hard Rock. It wasn't a very big spot. The stage was like everything was really great and Axel sounded great. There's actually a DVD called Appetite for Democracy. It's a Blu-ray of the concert. Um, and I think I was there. I think it was the they played like 12 nights in Vegas, this residency. Mm, I remember this. Yeah. Yeah. I think I was there. It wasn't the night that that Blu-ray is from. I think I was there a night or two before but it was, you know, within days of that. So, but I have that Blu-ray and it's pretty much exactly what I saw. And it was a great show. Don't get me wrong, but it just didn't feel like Guns N' Roses. When the solo comes and you look up and it's not Slash, it's some other guy in a, a top hat. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, what's his name? DJ, DJ Ashba. Ashba, yep, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't believe he had the audacity to wear the fucking top hat. But anyway, yeah, I know. Um, that, yeah, that's another, <laughs> another conversation. Okay, so we've got Guns N' Roses. One final point I'd like to make about that is what I always find interesting is that ballads like Don't Cry and November Rain were written. Uh, around the time of Appetite for Destruction. Yeah. And don't, or, uh, I think both, uh, certainly November Rain was supposed to be on the album, but they were discouraged from including it on the album. I think it was by their producer at the time because obviously it wouldn't have been such a fucking balls to the wall hard rock album had it been included. And I was, I was wondering, do you think the album would have suffered if the likes of November Rain had been included on the album? I think definitely. And I've you can hear, I've heard demos of that original version. There's like mm. a... I don't know how many version, five CD version of Appetite for Destruction that came out as like a reissue. Yeah. And there's demos of all that stuff on there. And I think they, you know, they picked the tracks. You know, they had Sweet Child of Mine, that's the ballad. You know, we'll just, I don't think they needed to have, you know, a November rain. And then the fact that they pushed it off, I know Axel kind of had this huge, huge vision for that song. Mm. And I think the version that they would have put out on this album wouldn't have been so like epic as no. the one that eventually came out. So I think he did the right thing. It wouldn't have been as fully realized, certainly. I, I don't even think the technology would have existed back then. Like I think the four years between when they released it and Appetite is probably a huge jump in like uh, home synthesizing. <laughs> like what, 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 what you could have in your studio to like create the sound of an orchestra or whatever. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, in the interest of moving along, we've been 30 minutes here. We've only discussed, oh, wow. appetite. <laughs> <laughs> we've only discussed appetite for Destruction. Let's move on. So what's album number two on your list of uh, hard rock and heavy metal albums, your top five of all time? So I would argue that Appetite for Destruction is maybe metal if, you know. Oh, yeah. Based, but this one, I don't know if it's like I remember people describing it as heavy metal back in the day. It's from 1990. Jane's Addiction, Ritual de lo Habitual. Oh, yes. Okay. Uh, so I must admit up front, Jane's Addiction are a band I'm not too familiar with. Uh, they completely are outside of my wheelhouse, to use a horrible term, uh, with hard rock and heavy metal and that type of stuff. Um, so I did give this a couple of listens in advance, and I'm familiar, obviously, with like Perry Farrell and the name of the band. And, and one song, the only song I knew before this was uh, Jane Says, I think is the name okay, of the song. Okay, right. Um, but I didn't really know anything else. But uh, yeah, give us a bit of background on your involvement with this album. Okay, so this one, do you remember Columbia House Records and Tapes, that like that record club that you could join? We had one over here called Britannia, and okay. it might have been it might have been just been the British slash Irish version of the same thing. But you like paid ten pounds and you got five albums up. It was That's 12, 12, what was it twelve tapes for a penny, and then you had to buy two more. At okay, full so price. something similar. Yeah, but I used <laughs> to see this all the time listed in in magazines and shit like that. Yeah. So I remember I got my 12 tapes, which was a huge deal because getting albums, I couldn't believe it. I got this like shoebox sized box in the mail. It had 12 tapes and I listened to them all. I can't remember what they were, 
what the other ones were. I think I got like some Jimi Hendrix stuff and like classic rock stuff. One of the ones that I got was a Suicidal Tendencies album, Lights, oh, Camera, yeah. Revolution. And then my friend Terry, I think you've heard me talk about Terry. Oh, Terry. <laughs> Jesus, don't let Josh hear this. So he he had this Jane's Addiction tape, and I didn't like this. I really like the album, the Suicidal Tendencies album that came out before Lights, Camera, Revolution. And uh, he didn't like his Jane's Addiction one. And I didn't really like my Suicidal Tendencies. So we like swapped these tapes. Oh, old school, just doing a swap. Yeah, so I got his Jane's Addiction tape, which I still have. And uh, yeah, when I listened to this, it just like blew me away. And I picked Appetite, Appetite for Destruction because it's my favorite album of all time. Mm-hmm. I picked this album because it has my all-time favorite song. So I've had the same favorite song since 1990. So for 30 years, I've had the same favorite song and I've never gotten sick of it. It's uh, Three Days. It's been... Yeah, it has my yeah. all-time favorite guitar solo, and it has my second favorite guitar solo of all time in the same song. Okay, so yeah, I have listened to this, and you made a point of telling me in advance that Three Days <laughs> was your favorite song. So I listened to that more than the other songs, and yeah. Jesus, that solo is very good, and it goes on and on. Uh, yeah, it's uh, almost Dave, 11 Dave minutes. Yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, no, uh, it's an excellent guitar solo, I thought. But to me, I found Jane's Addiction quite difficult to connect with. Um, and I think I, I can't really put my finger on it exactly, but I, I, I want to use the word funky, but they're not quite as funky as the Red Hot Chili Peppers. So maybe that's wrong. Yeah. No, I can see there is some funk in there. There's some punk rock in there. There's some like alt rock, art but, rock. I don't know. It's all kind of, they're very unique sounding. But what I kind of settled on after a while of thinking is to me, I didn't find that there were too many hooks in the songs, so I couldn't get into them as a first or second or third time listener because there were to, to me I wasn't kind of going away singing any particular aspect of any of their songs and that that's what hooks me in to <laughs> to yeah. use the term in its original context um and I didn't find anything hooked me in really with Jane's Addiction what, what hooked you into to Jane's Addiction um well you got to remember I was in grade 10 when this album came out and so it hit me at just the right time like you're just starting to like kind of party expand your mind or whatever and like this album just had this impact on me like the lyrics for that song three days like looking at them now as a 40 something person i don't mm-hmm. know how i'd feel about them if some the first time but i remember being in grade 10 and just being like you know 16 years old and being like holy crap this like song blew my mind so it's it's a, it, am i right in saying it's about an orgy where he invited his old girlfriend over to have partially a, a, yeah a three they had day a party. three day last weekend with him and his two girlfriends where they did like tons of drugs so we talked about heroin and when we were talking about appetite for destruction this album is completely like the sound of like heroin this is heroin working because after this album they kind of broke up but this is another bunch of people doing like lots of drugs uh so actually i don't think Stephen Perkins did heroin, but the other three, so, there was so like Perry so much Farrell, tension, yeah. Perry Farrell had his heroin issues. Dave Navarro, was he also on the heroin? Oh, yeah. Her, uh, Dave Navarro says he doesn't remember anything about recording this album. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and it's such a musically, like, intricate album, <laughs> especially the guitar solos and everything. Yeah, I know. Well, like I said, heroin works for a while. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice continuity there with Appetite for Destruction. <laughs> Um, okay, so uh, what a kind of age were you? You're saying grade 12, so you're about 16 grade at 10, this time. I was in grade, grade 10. Grade 10, sorry. Yeah. So you're about 16 at this time. Yeah. If, if you were 14 in grade 8. Yeah, and I mean, yeah. I've listened to the song, I would say, easily a thousand times. I listened to the song four times in a row when I was driving to my cabin this past weekend because I was kind of listening to this album again to try to 
you know, I've never mm. really stopped listening to this album in 30 years. And that okay. song, to me, I enjoy it as much now as I did when I was in grade 10. I never get sick of it. That's crazy. That's brilliant. And like the Appetite for Destruction <laughs> would want to be those would be one of those albums for me. I've well, never me stopped too, listening yeah. to it. Um, same with uh, some other albums. But um, okay, so like, is is this a continuous fandom as well? Is it like Iron Maiden? Are you do you do you listen to their more recent releases? I know they had an album out a few years ago. This is their. I had their first self-titled album. I had their one. Nothing shocking before this, and then this one. They do have albums after that. They kind of broke up, and they've had some reunions. And I do have all that stuff, and I like it. But it's kind of, this is their peak, I think. This one, the album before is also, I think, very, very strong. Like, um, I don't know. They, the stuff that came after the breakup and they got back together, it, there's good stuff on there, but it's, they never, re- like, they'll never reach these heights again or, I don't know. Okay. And, and this, so this was the first album that got you into them. I, I found it interesting when I was reading about them that uh, their first actual proper album was a live album. Yeah. James yeah. Addiction. I, I don't think I've ever heard of that. Um, I think Soundgarden did that. They oh, put did out, they? Oh, it wasn't a live album, but they, they had like a record deal in place. And in the meantime, I think they put out a on a SST, on a small label, they put out an album. But it wasn't a live album, no. You, you had Guns N' Roses did live like a suicide, but that was like four tracks, more of an EP. Yeah, um, and they weren't even real live tracks as we no, all know they, 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 they dubbed in the sound but uh, <laughs> yeah I just found it interesting their first LP let's say their long playing album was a, a live album and that got the attention of the major record labels which got them to the point where they could record the album that you've chosen right yeah interesting um, to me one thing you said a minute ago about this album mm. I think this album now that I think about it so this album like Chains and Diction are completely like Los Angeles band LA. So is Guns N' Roses. And they both came up at the same time. I think this might be the second nail in the coffin. Maybe not this album, but this band, the second nail in the coffin for hair metal. <laughs> right. Okay. So what are we talking about? 87, uh, 88 kind of when they came Yeah. Out. Their first album was 87. Guns N' Roses' first album is 87 too. Yeah. But like, this is another, Guns N' Roses and Jane's Addiction were both LA bands that were kind of singing about LA, but they were kind of singing about like the the seedy the underbelly. underbelly of LA, <laughs> you know what I mean? And they're yeah. both into heroin. They both had lead singers that were kind of gradually taking control away from the band. Mm. And they both kind of burnt out quickly after these albums. So so like... I, um, I never really put that together before. <laughs> yeah, that's that's really interesting stuff. So like uh, Motley Crue, let's say, was like um, one of the major film studios released a film about LA. But like uh, Jane's Addiction and Guns N' Roses is an independent documentary about what really happens in LA. Yeah. And that's <laughs> that's kind of what, uh, what uh, exposed the hair metal for what it was. Yeah, I, I, I think it's so easy to just say, oh, Nirvana or grunge killed hair metal. And like you hear people like, you know, Biff Byford from Saxon and, and other people like that just kind of saying, well, when the 90s came along, you know, that was the end of our bands and not the Saxon or hair metal, like, but I mean, they killed old school heavy metal. But I think it's a lot more, like, you, like you've brought up now, I think it's a lot more nuanced than that. Yeah, there's um, a lot of bands that kind of laid the groundwork, I think, for that yeah. album. I think Soundgarden could have been that band, but I don't know, I think, you know, because yeah. they were on the go long before Nirvana, but I think Nirvana kind of was the one that stepped up and at the perfect time and they get all well, the credit for it. They took the spotlight pretty much. Um, okay, another thing I wanted to mention about Jane's Addiction is they were the like impetus for the first Lollapalooza tour, apparently. So the Lollapalooza tour was the tour, Perry Farrell put that together after this album came out. And that was the tour, that was their final tour. They kind of, 
there were some on stage fights and like tension and that was kind of the end of them after that right but Lollapalooza has continued is it around still to this day I'm not sure uh, I have no idea I know Jane's Addiction reunited and played it again years mm. later in the 2000 somethings yeah but uh, they took an early retirement back in 91 and obviously they've reunited multiple times since obviously a lot of bands follow that career path but yeah. it, it's always interesting to me to look back and go oh your, your farewell tour in 91 that's, yeah, that's interesting <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean technically Guns N' Roses should have done that as well <laughs> yeah that's true. then maybe people wouldn't be so hard on what came after um, okay so that's Jane's Addiction okay so what's third on the list so this is like a true heavy metal classic uh, Judas Priest Sad Wings of Destiny Ah, an album close to my heart. Yeah, you love this one? <laughs> I absolutely love Judas Priest, and yes, this this is the first Judas Priest studio album that I bought. I previously had a best of, but this is the first studio album that I bought. Okay. But so, uh, yeah, tell, tell me your story with uh, Sad Wings of Destiny. So, Painkiller is the first album that I got. Um, I threw a lot of albums around, so I was like, there's Painkiller, British Steel, Screaming for Vengeance. They could have all been put in here, but I went with this one because... Those albums, I think, might be maybe better albums, but this one's definitely my favorite. It was like a toss-up between Painkiller and Sad Wings. But okay. Sad Wings, I think, is my favorite. Although Painkiller, I think, has the most metal album cover of all time. <laughs> a man riding a motorbike over molten lava. That's right. A motorbike that's made out of a dragon with saw blade wheels. <laughs> Which is actually kind of a reboot of this album cover, because I always thought that was like the same kind of angel guy with the wings, right? Yeah, yeah, and I I think it's quite self-referential, definitely. Yeah. But Painkiller is my first Priest album. I think I knew some pain... I knew some hits, like, by Judas Priest. Painkiller, I remember seeing the Painkiller video, and I had it taped off on a VHS tape, and I remember watching it over and over, and then I got the cassette, and then that was Priest to me. And then when Napster came out, remember mm. Napster? And then I, I went and got into all the old Judas Priest albums. And uh, this is the one that I think out of all of them, you know, really, I don't know what it is about this one. It's really cohesive. It's a great, it's not, I don't know, there's no, I'm trying to describe it. It's an album that you really have to listen to from beginning to end. You don't have to, but I I do. And it has my favorite Judas Priest song of all time, which is Deceiver on it. And it's pre-Leather and Studs, Judas Priest. Judas Priest just kind of figuring out who they are. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, oh, I do completely. Yeah, yeah. I, I will say the word cohesive is a great word to describe this because Judas Priest albums can be all over the place. I'm thinking like of Point of Entry, yeah, uh, and even even um, British Steel, which had like a reggae fucking song on it. Basically. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but this one from beginning to album, it's a true, or from beginning to end, it's like a true metal yeah. album classic. And I think I'd say their other most cohesive album is actually Painkiller, uh, which you previously yeah, mentioned. which are my two favorites. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So I, I just want to tell you a tiny little bit of a story about my, my relationship with this album. Um, I bought this album. It was my first ever Judas Priest album, studio album, sorry. So I had previously bought Living After Midnight, which was a one disc greatest hits uh, album of Judas Priest. But because of the nature of the contractual issues with this album, there were no songs of um, Sad Wings of Destiny on the living after midnight compilation so it kind of starts at uh what's the one after that is it it's sin after sin it starts at that album and goes on to whatever like the latest album was at the time probably painkiller and um and it didn't acknowledge the tim ripper owens album obviously um 
So, when I was going to buy my next Judas Priest album, similar to my story with Iron Maiden, I went into Tower Records and I said, which is the Judas Priest album which has the fewest songs that are on Living After Midnight? And I went and I checked and... Uh, there was obviously their first album, Rockerola. I already had that on a burnt disc, so I'm not counting that. And I went and I searched, and Sad Wings of Destiny obviously had zero songs on the compilation because they don't include those songs on compilations because of contractual issues. So uh, when I brought that home and I listened to it, I was like, fucking hell. <laughs> this is completely different music. And, yeah. and it was also like a completely different style. It was like mid-70s uh, heavy rock, but kind of a bit proggy, experimental. Um, and Rob Halford's vocals were just, they were on another level. And I, I don't oh, know yeah. if he's ever really reached that level again, personally. And it is weird. I sent you a YouTube video to watch, which uh, people that are listening to this should check it out. It's called Judas Priest Dreamer Deceiver BBC Performance. And look it up on YouTube. Um, this is, you can really see that, like, Judas Priest, this is Rob Halford with long hair and scarves. And, like, the band is all bell bottoms. They look like, I don't know what, yeah. Leonard Skinner almost. <laughs> you know and what he's I mean? wearing, wearing a fucking kimono or something. Yeah, with, like, sequins <laughs> on it. It's, it's, it's yeah. really far from what people think of when they think of uh yeah so that was the old gray whistle test that that was on which was was okay yeah it was a bbc music program which was almost probably as as influential as top of the pops the only difference was is top of the pops included the top 40 singles at the time and the old gray whistle test would include like uh not necessarily things that were in the top of the charts but music that might be of interest to the general public so the bbc obviously being the uh government-funded television station in Britain. So they had to feature things that weren't just going to be popular, but things that might be of artistic interest to the audience. So yeah. I think that's why the likes of Tom Waits and Judas Priest and other bands made it onto the old Great Whistle Test, whereas they were never going to feature in Top of the Pops. Well, Judas Priest eventually did, but not back in 1975 when I think that was from. But I'd recommend everyone go check that out. It's pretty cool to see them. And it, the performance is amazing. Like Rob Halford's vocals on that performance. Yes, his, his vocals yeah. are amazing. And I, I, my, what I picked up from watching it, I watched it again when you sent it to me today, just to, to kind of refresh myself, but I had seen it before, uh, is he couldn't be any further from his metal god persona that he forged yeah. himself years later. <laughs> yeah, totally. He's like a long-haired hippie in a kimono. Uh, and <laughs> the rest of the band are, like as you said, wearing bell-bottoms. Like Glenn Tipton is there plucking away at his guitar like a, a hippie in a fucking commune. In, yeah, know, like in a fedora the, hat on or something. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's KK who has the fedora. Oh, yeah, you're right. It is. (laughs) But they just look like such twerps. (laughs) Compared to like, if you fast forward to 1979, Halford's riding out onto the stage on a motorbike. There's (laughs) fire. He's wearing black leather and studs. He's commanding the stage. Here they're just like almost apologetic. (laughs) Yeah, there's no leather, I don't think. Except for uh, Glenn Tipton's platform shoes. (laughs) Yeah, it's very funny. So obviously that album is a classic. You have songs like Tyrant, The Ripper. Oh, yeah, Tyrant, Changes. Yeah. Tyrant is one of my favorite Judas Priest songs of all time. Yeah, me too. And Victim of Changes, you know, Island of Domination. Yeah. Ty- Tyrant is so great, yeah. And Deceiver, Dreamer Deceiver into Deceiver is like, you know, every time I made a mixtape when I was young, I'd always put those two back to back. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah, that's awesome. So me and, and Kevin, who was on uh, episode one of Talking Metal. Yep. No, what the fuck am I talking about? Feckin' Metal. Feckin' Metal. <laughs> <laughs> I got the name of my own podcast. Um, he, uh, so we got into Judas Priest around the same time. I think I got the best of first, and then he went out and bought Metalworks, which is a double CD album. Um, obviously, 
of their entire career like so uh so all, all of a sudden he had all these other songs that i didn't have i was like whoa fucking hell like so i had songs like dissident aggressor and all this stuff but i remember the, it did feature songs from um from sad wings of destiny but they were always the live version so it featured victim of changes for example but it was the live version from uh unleashed in the east rather than the album version right. and when i dug into this as a, as a youngster i found out that their first two albums were released on a record label called gull records and uh, gull records had a contract with judas priest but they were so dissatisfied with like you know their financial returns from their uh their uh, contract with gold records that they broke their contract and they signed to cbs and to this day they still don't own the rights to those first two albums which is why the likes of victim of changes or tyrant or any of those songs never feature on any of their compilations um which is really frustrating as a fan because like there's something like unresolved or incomplete about those first two albums and, and they kind of act like they don't exist to a certain yeah. extent uh, which is bothersome for me. So, like, I have a CD here, um, which is Judas Priest Genocide. It's the first two albums collated into, like, a compilation. But they've released about eight, nine, ten different versions of this. In the 70s, there was an album called Hero Hero. Right, so this like, is something I was going to bring up, because upstairs on vinyl, I have the best of Judas Priest, with the one with those two samurais on the front. Yeah. And I have Hero Hero. And I always was like, I never really put it together. And I was like, these are... I bought them because they have cool album covers and they're Judas Priest. But I was like, this is clearly not the best of Judas Priest. <laughs> and this is like the same album with like, I couldn't, it's those two albums repackaged and shuffled up. And yeah, it never exactly. made any sense to me. But now, according to what you just said, that makes sense now. It is. So they've reshuffled <laughs> those two albums a billion times and just constantly released them time after time after time. Uh, because like they have obviously some financial return, you know, when they release a Judas Priest album. But like, I, I wish Judas Priest would, Priest would just pay them the fucking money yeah. that they want. Yeah, totally. <laughs> just buy the albums off them. Like, whatever they want, just give it to them and just free yourself from this bullshit. Like, One thing I always found funny on that Hero Hero album is when you open up the vinyl, there's a picture of the band and it's all done with like neon paint. It's very like, it reminds me of the cover of Kiss Asylum. Okay, but it's I don't like know Judas, that cover. Oh, it's like, you know, it's very like... It's I like do a photo know that that's Sorry. painted over with like neon colors on it. Yeah, oh, I do know it's like cartoon graphics, like very eighties yeah. looking. Yeah, I do know it. Sorry, yeah, yeah. yeah that's the non makeup era kiss. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so it's a very non metal look for Judas Priest. On I, the I'm sure of that, that album. I'm sure Gull Records just put that together themselves. Oh, probably. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah, like I just give them the money they want and just buy those albums back. I don't know. Um, what else? I, I had something else to say about that. Oh, yeah, you don't really hear songs from uh, Sad Wings played very often recently. You might hear Victim of Changes or The Ripper, but, like, they brought back Tyrant recently, like, uh, I think in the last tour, but they hadn't played it in probably 30 or 40 years. I would love to hear the likes of Dreamer, Deceiver, or Island of Domination, or something like that played. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, they don't dip in deep enough into that album, for my liking. I'd love to hear all of those songs played, really. Yeah. I mean, Victim of Changes, I think, might be one of his best vocal performances. Yeah. Um, and again, that's another one that's heavy that if people had never heard of Judas Priest and they heard that, you wouldn't think heavy metal. But I mean, this is like the heart of heavy metal here. You know what I mean? Without a shadow of a doubt, yeah. But something else I wanted to mention is I said how I got Painkiller and then the rest of these albums I got into through Napster and downloading MP3s illegally. So something, I don't know if people probably say this all the time, but if it wasn't for Napster, I don't think I would have gotten into Judas Priest the way I did because I got into all these albums and then immediately went out and got the CDs. And now I own almost all these albums on, uh, or all the classic Priest albums on vinyl in multiple formats. And if it wasn't for downloading the MP3s originally, you know what I mean? 
The thing is, Nesbitt, I think you're a rare breed where you'll go out and you'll buy all those albums and you'll buy them in multiple formats, but the little shitty teeny boppers in the early 2000s probably haven't done that, to be perfectly yeah, honest. Yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I'm similar. Like, if it weren't for Spotify, there's a lot of bands that I wouldn't be into. And I said to Kyle from Seven Sisters on the last episode, I got into your band through Spotify. I've since been to see you live. I own a Seven Sisters t-shirt. I don't own any of their albums in physical format, but, like, basically, at, at, at any juncture... Like, if they come and play Ireland again, I will go and see them, give them direct money, and I will buy, like, multiple T-shirts from them. Like, so, if it weren't for Spotify, I wouldn't have done any of that, because I never would have listened to them, because I wouldn't have bought a CD. Uh, So, you know, there are pros and cons for all of that stuff, really. Well, it's funny, because I listened to your last episode when you were interviewing the guy from Seven Sisters, and Mm. uh, I remember you'd mentioned them to me before, but I went and listened to, I can't remember the name of the album. The latest album, studio album that they put The Cauldron out. and the Cross? Yes. So I listened to that a couple of times, and at, that's awesome. That was right up my alley. Like, it sounds very Judas Priest-like in a way. Yeah. It's very, like, I can hear the influences in there, but it sounds very unique, too. So it's it's kind of cool that we're, yeah. they popped up while we're talking with Judas Priest. Because I really, it's not very often that I can hear a new metal band and they really, really do it for me. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But I, I think they're one of the better bands on the scene at the moment who are playing that style of metal and I think they're like if you look at Spotify like their their plays do not reflect that you know they're you know they're monthly listeners or whatever but uh, yeah if you're if you're listening to this the theme music is by Kyle from Seven Sisters and they're an excellent band and you should really listen to them okay uh, so next on the list for your top five uh, hard rock or metal albums is so I had to pick an Iron Maiden album ah I picked of course Seventh Son of a Seventh Son. Okay, so, well, that's an excellent album. Yes, yeah. I, can, I can attest to that. This is one of about seven Maiden albums that I could have put in here. But the reason that I picked this one is because our whole podcast, over three years, we went through every single Iron Maiden song, including the B-sides. We went through every single album. And then at the end, we did a review of every single Maiden album. And then we had a two, I think we did two episodes where we talked about ranking them. And I ranked all the albums and I, kind of used a formula and came up with Seventh Son of a Seventh Son being my all-time favorite Maiden album, which was kind of a surprise to me. But then I kind of looked at my system and I was like, well, it kind of makes sense. So that's the system slash formula I was referring to at the start of the podcast. Yeah, right. so uh, yeah. So as an avid listener of uh, Talking Maiden, obviously I realized that this is your top Iron Maiden album. But uh, do I sense, is, was there a, a slight element of disappointment that your formula produced this album as your best Iron Maiden album? Or? Well, kind of, because I always thought, well, I was kind of thinking it was going to be Peace of Mind or maybe Number of the Beast. Yeah. So basically I'll explain what I did was I ranked every single, over the course of like a year, I ranked every single Iron Maiden song and I kind of, you know, messed with it a bit back and forth. And over over the course of the podcast, when we were done the podcast, I had the definitive Nesbitt's ranking of every single Iron Maiden song. Then I gave points to each song and then added up each album based on how many, on the rankings of the songs and then the totals. And that gave me the, like the data for like the order of the albums to start with. But then I factored in a whole bunch of other things. So Seventh Son did come out as the highest scoring album based on the tracks. But then it's also a concept album. It's really cohesive, like we were talking about. Mm. Um, The art for it and the art for the singles and the whole concept and the art all fits together. The flow of the album, album, where it opens with that acoustic part and closed with the acoustic part. The sound of the production and the way that works with the cover art and like the blue, cold feeling. 
Mm. I don't know. And it's this perfect mix of like epics and rockers and I don't know. It just, this is my favorite Maiden album. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I think it's an excellent album. I think I would probably pick Brave New World, Peace of Mind over it just off the top of my head. But it's it's an excellent album. You know, you're, you're splitting hairs there, like yeah. deciding why you're not choosing it. Uh, for, you know, listeners who might be somewhat familiar, that's the album that has Can I Play With Madness, The Evil That Men Do, um, the title Infinite track. Dreams, title track Seven Son of a Seven Son. Yeah, so it's, it was, it's full of hit singles, actually. Yeah, yeah, it is. They, and it's funny, like, my all-time favorite Maiden song is The Evil That Men Do. So I kind of, that's another thing that kind of made me pick this album. My favorite song, mm. the album that it's from. It's one of mine as well. I think Hallowed Be Thy Name would pip it for me. Although, do you know, with that recent lawsuit, I don't know. Like my, my, <laughs> my yeah, I know. That was weird. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> kind of poisons it a bit, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> well, Hallowed Be Thy Name is my number two all-time Maiden track. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, okay, let's talk a bit about Seven Sons. So this is in the late 80s. It's 1988. It's released. Uh, previously, of course, Bruce Dickinson has been on record, on video record, saying, you can't do heavy metal with synthesizers. Right. And they went and bloody well did it. Um, but this was a huge leap for the band in terms of sound. Yeah, well, somewhere in time they had the guitar synth, and now they finally went full synth. So, yeah, it's and you can see the progression from, like, Peace of Mind to Power Slave, and then, like, um, you know, you get into Somewhere in Time, and then it's kind of got that bit of spacey sound. But then yes. Seventh Son, they're gone full on into it. And it's almost like they peaked, and then they dropped off a cliff and went way back, trying to recapture the, the sound of Killers again with no prayer. And I think this is like their... It's what, well, I think Maidens had many, many peaks in their career, but mm. as far as their albums go, they, they really, their sound really hit a peak here, I think, as far as like production and stuff, or they're really pushing how far they could take their sound. I think so, and I think they wouldn't hit that peak again until Brave New World in 2000, and certainly in terms of sound. Um, yeah. I would agree. Yeah, with that. so yeah, it was it was a huge. Despite what Bruce said on that video from the eighties, it was a huge uh, progression in their sound, and I think it, it they were all the better for it because there were only so many albums that sounded like Number of the Beast, Peace of Mind, um, and Power Slave that they could produce. Yeah, that you know it was going to become ridiculously pre- repetitive, and obviously uh, seventh or somewhere in time added. The, I, to me, I always think of it as the space album as well, probably because of the cover, you know, with the yeah. and Android <laughs> Eddie. But it does kind of, it sounds spacey, like the, the loneliness of the long distance runner. Yeah, and, it really does. It, it just sounds like you're in a sci-fi film. Like, um, but, but Seventh Sun sounds a bit different. It has a bit of a warmer sound. It has that kind of warmer, more inviting sound. Like, and um, it's just so hook laden. Like every single song is just catchy as fuck. But oh, like, yeah. <laughs> they, don't, they don't sacrifice themselves to the point where it sounds like they're selling out to become more commercial like Aerosmith like we mentioned earlier or whatever like or Metallica doing the Black Album like they don't prostitute their sound for those hooks but they manage to fit them in there anyway yeah it's true yeah and it's it's funny because bands like I guess all bands go through this they when they get a few albums out and they go to put out a new album fans Mm. are like you know, they'll get mad. They're like, they're just putting the same shit out over and over again. They're just, you know what I mean? Or, After a certain point, fans are out for blood, no matter what yeah, you put in. And then if you try something different, they're like, oh, they changed their sound. They sold out. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you can't win. But I yeah. think Seventh Son is a, a is them kind of being like, it sounds enough like their old stuff with sev- somewhere in time kind of as that bridge. Mm. So it didn't come completely out of the blue, but uh, it still and sounds it- like Maiden. For context purposes, what age would you have been when you got into Seventh Son of a Seventh Son? So, uh, 
let me think now. I was in high school, so it was it wasn't when the album came out. It would have been a few years later. So my first album was Live After Death. I was in high school. That would have been 1990, I think. Mm. So I knew made, or I think it was 89. I can't remember exactly. And then this was the album that I got into immediately after. Okay, so then to put that even in further context, were you listening to the likes of Jane's Addiction and Seven Son of a Seven Son at the same time? or did Yes, one... I was actually. Now yeah. you say it, yeah. And Guns yeah. N' Roses, yeah. That, that's quite interesting because I would have been quite similar. Like I listen to different types of music at the same time, but, but there is this notion, especially with the general public, and, and it's not based on nothing. Like, you know, a lot of it's based on real true events that heavy metal people just like heavy metal and like the people who wear those patch jackets around i have one of those like um i'd wear it to a concert but uh it doesn't mean i just like heavy metal but there are a certain contingent of people who you know i wear a heavy metal patch jacket i like iron maiden i like slayer blah 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 blah. i just like heavy metal but you're obviously never one of those people no and i think people might be surprised because people that know me from talking maiden like you know i've spent three years talking about iron maiden and I think they maybe assume that I'm like a, some metal guy. Yeah. And I do like a lot of metal. Like it's a big chunk of what I listen to, but like I listen to all kinds of stuff. So, mm. you know, I mean, the fact that I just said my favorite album and my favorite song and my two favorite guitar solos don't have anything to do with Iron Maiden might surprise some people yeah. that are listening to this. You know what I mean? Shock horror. Shock horror for talking Maiden fans. <laughs> <laughs> but I agree. Like there are people that I, I've known people that are into metal, and if you try to get them to listen to something, they're like, "This is crap. This isn't metal. Like, get rid of it." Like, yeah. I don't know. Or I people that like scoff at hair metal. There's a lot I of can, those people. <laughs> I can think of at least two prime examples just from my own friends who would like, if it's not heavy metal, just turn it off and fuck off and get out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like heavy metal becomes their, like part of their identity. You know what I mean? Where I was never like that. I listened to like all kinds of stuff. I listened to like, I don't know. I could start listing bands, but. You know, I'm into a lot of classic rock stuff that kind of this stuff that was around pre-metal mm. and then into metal, hard rock, alternative. I was into all the grunge stuff. I like a lot of like old punk stuff. I love the Ramones. I love the Stooges, like that kind of stuff. Like, I don't know, I'm kind yeah. of all over the map. Hey, here, listen, the other night I was sitting here listening to a playlist of 2000s pop music. So, Oh, yeah. <laughs> don't, don't judge me for that either. But like, That's you something know. else I hate is people use that term like guilty pleasures. And I'm like, yeah, I, it's just a I pleasure. It, I, I don't feel guilty because I want to listen to like a Poison album. Like, yeah. you, you think I should feel guilty about that? It's, I don't know. I love it. <laughs> I don't like the term guilty pleasure either. And I really, really try not to use it because I think it's it's kind of pathetic. It's it's like, why would you feel guilty about something that gave you pleasure? It, it, it's contradictory. <laughs> yeah. I think it's yeah. just our age is the reason we feel like that. I think when I was in high school, there was a few albums that I probably was like, I don't want anyone to know I listen to this. You know what I mean? Whereas now I wouldn't care. Yeah, no, I wouldn't give a fuck either. Yeah. Uh, Taylor Swift, <laughs> bring it on. Um, okay, I have two young girls, so I've heard a lot of Taylor Swift. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, she has some decent songs. I, yeah. I'd be the first to admit. Um, Blank Space being one of them. Um, all right, so okay, so that's Seventh Son of a Seventh Son. Uh, one thing I'd like to touch on that you mentioned there is after directly after Seventh Son of a Seventh Son they probably produced their worst album of all time or their second worst album of all time. And it's one of the biggest falls from grace of any big, massive rock or metal band that I can think of. The difference between Seventh Son and No Prayer for the Dying, it's shocking. Yeah, it, it really is. Yeah, it's the Adrian Smith, you know, the lack of Adrian Smith, I think is a big part of it. And then trying to go back and capture the killer's sound with 
that version of like where Iron Maiden was. I, I, I don't know. You can't can't go back and just recapture things by recording it quick and making it sound rough. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, and they and they were missing two of the key components. Of course, they were missing Paul Diano yeah. and they were missing Adrian Smith, as yeah. you mentioned. Okay, uh, yeah. So I, I just thought I'd mention that there. Okay, so that's three out of five done. We're not doing too badly. We're that's an hour four out of five done. <laughs> four. That's four. Yeah. Are we four? Guns N' Roses, Jane's Addiction, Judas Priest, Iron Maiden. So we are. We're four out of five done. <laughs> the remaining one is Nesbit. Will you please reveal album number five out of your top five hard rock and heavy metal albums? Okay, this is one that I've argued with people about it being metal, and I will argue to the death that it is heavy metal. This is Soundgarden, Bad Motorfinger. Okay. Uh, yeah. So I listened to this album recently, and I all like I kind of already knew Rusty Cage and uh, Jesus Christ Pose. Is that's the name of one of the songs? Isn't yep. it? Yeah. Yeah, I kind of already knew that song. Um, and I would say, yeah, okay, I, I, I could get, get down with the fact that it's heavy metal. Some of the intros sound very fucking heavy metal. Yeah. Like they're lifted straight from Black Sabbath uh, yep. to me. Listening to that guitar tone. Sorry, I was going to say, if I closed my eyes and I wasn't looking at the artwork and, you know, I didn't know which century or the decade I was in, I could be listening to Black Sabbath in the 70s. Yeah, um, I'm a huge Soundgarden fan. Like, they're probably one of my top five bands of all time including like zeppelin and all those bands uh they don't have an album i don't like um this is the first one i heard and from front to back i think it's perfect there's no weakness on this one at all either i don't think there's any filler some of them are a bit slower growers than others and like like you said like rusty cage outshined jesus christ pose are kind of like the entry points but i think like the last half of the album is where all like the the best stuff is like i saw them in I want to say 2014 in Montreal and it was in a pretty small club and they opened with searching with my good eye closed and it just blew me away. Right. So So some of those heavier songs towards the end or, you know, room a thousand years wide, that's completely like sludgy, heavy metal pounding. I love it. So give us a bit of background with Soundgarden. So what uh, does this coincide with your like of Judas Priest, Iron Maiden? um, Yeah, I was listening to all this stuff at the same time. So out of all the 90s Seattle stuff, uh, this is my was always my favorite. Like, I was a big Pearl Jam fan, and I liked Nirvana, like everyone did. Mm. I really thought Alice in Chains was amazing. I really got into Mud Honey. I loved Mud Honey, too. Okay. But Soundgarden had that, like, heaviness and that speed that kind of separated them from the rest of those bands, which is kind of – it's kind of crazy people throw that term grunge around. But, I mean, you know, Pearl Jam doesn't sound like Alice in Chains, doesn't sound like Mud Honey, doesn't sound like Soundgarden. If they were from different cities, would people even associate them together? I don't know about that now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> are you are you saying that you don't notice any similarities in the sound between those bands? Um, with uh, maybe, but like Pearl Jam always came off as like a rock and roll band. You know what I mean? Yeah. Nirvana is kind of like sloppy pop rock. Mm-hmm. Like those song, there's so many hooks on Nevermind. Like that's almost like pop songs but they're delivered with like this aggression Allison the chains has their own like super dark weird harmonies thing they're i would say they're heavy metal too and then mud honey was almost back to like the stooges punk sound and then Soundgarden to me was this like sabbathy metal band but okay i would say there are very <laughs> strong similarities in the vocal tone of the singer in all, like, let's pick Alison Chains, Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, and Nirvana. If you picked somebody off the street and played them four clips, I would say they would 
notice a lot of similarities in just in the vocal register it's a lower register it's it's deep the melodies are never high pitched it's never a falsetto it's not anything like that yeah. it's like lower register and and i would say as well the <laughs> to you, like this probably sounds ridiculous but like maybe nirvana aside like if you talk about pearl jam allison chains and soundgarden like there are melodies but it's not very melodic it's not very catchy it's, it's not it's not like pop it doesn't jump out at you off the airwaves like it's kind of you have to search deeper to find those melodies. yeah i could i could see that and I don't know. the guitar tone obviously as well the guitar maybe tone. it's one of those things where when you're get so into like people think iron maiden sounds a lot alike like a lot of their albums sound alike and i'm like no yeah Peace of Mind and Power Slave are totally different from Brave New World. You know what I mean? But only because you're so into it. And I think where I listen to these bands so much, maybe yeah. to me, the differences stand out where to other people they wouldn't. You know what I mean? I will say, <laughs> out of like those those four map, uh, major grunge bands I mentioned there, just listening to Soundgarden a bit recently, I'd say they're more of the musicians' band. Like they're they're far more experimental with their song structures. Uh, the instrumentation is far more complex. I think they stand out because we well, have Kim Thale, his guitar playing is i don't think there's anyone that compares to him as far as like style like he his you listen to any of his guitar solos and the riffs he comes up with and then you have chris cornell's voice which is amazing matt cameron uh well like his timings all these really weird timings and stuff and then you have this is the first album with ben shepherd playing bass and he kind of brings this like weirdness so there's all these songs that he, he contributes to writing which kind of have a really weird feeling to them you know what i mean yeah like face um, pollution and somewhere on this are those are two songs written by Ben Shepard and they're kind of like the weirdest ones but he kind of before this if you go to like louder than love or ultra mega okay they don't really have that weird psychedelic feeling and i think he kind of lent that to them and this is why i think this is their best album my favorite album anyway actually uh, i think uh, super unknown is a better album this is my favorite album so super unknown has like black hole sun on it yeah <laughs> uh, yeah so like that's probably the major soundgarden song i would have known so i'll confess to the listener here at this juncture as well like soundgarden is not a band that i'm too familiar with personally and i was recently like like told off about this uh, as you might be aware i'm singing in a band at the moment that's a stretch you know we've, we've been rehearsing in a rehearsal space and uh, one of the guys suggested doing outshined and i'd never listened to it before in my life and one of the guys darren was like how do you not know Soundgarden? And I was like, I don't, I don't know. I can't explain. I can't explain how. But he's like, but that's ridiculous. Like, how do you, how do you not know them? Like, <laughs> and yeah. I, I basically just said that they just never entered, you know, my list of bands that I got into. And, but th- then I have to say, when I started listening to them, I was like, mm, I think I might know why I never listened to Soundgarden. And it's based on the thing I mentioned earlier is that I find it's quite uh, barren of hooks <laughs> and, yeah i think they're all about like riffs and heaviness yes but there and, and are hooks in there but you kind of have to listen uh, to get I don't know, like, them. <laughs> so so i've been trying to sing outshined like i'm not a great singer at all like i'm, I'm a passable singer at best um but you know I, I think i'm better than darren who was singing before i joined the band so you know it's an improvement <laughs> um but i was trying to sing outshined and i was like christ almighty and like obviously it's a very difficult song to sing and, and oh, yeah. chris cornell is a very talented singer but to me there's no like there's no really melodic part that i can get into and, and to contrast that, we're also doing Californication by the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And right. that song is so dripping in melody, it's disgusting. Yeah, that's all hooks. <laughs> <laughs> it's like sickly sweet compared to like, you know, yeah. um, lemon sherbet or something. I don't know. <laughs> I think a lot of this album is the vocals are there, but they're almost, 
I don't know. I think like the melody is carried by the the riffs, and then the vocal is just kind of laid on top of it as like another instrument in a way. You know what I mean? And it all just comes together for the, I don't know. I whatever it is, whatever recipe they're using on this album to mix everything together when they're writing the songs, like I can't get enough Soundgarden. Like they're one of my favorite bands. For sure. I already mentioned, but I don't know. <laughs> like I, I I love hearing people talking passionately about bands they like. I know what you mean Oh, I know what you mean though about having bands that like for some reason you completely skipped over cuz I talked to someone and they're like talking about Pantera and I'm like I can name maybe five Pantera songs and they're like what <laughs> how can you be well, so into Priest and so into Maiden you don't even know Pantera and I'm like I don't know if somehow they just I'll, t- I'll tell you Nesbitt you can name four more than I can so <laughs> <laughs> but uh, see Pantera were quite similar in that they were like groove metal I would say yeah uh, and like Soundgarden are a lot of groove you know I'd say there's a lot of heavy groove in there as well yeah. um, and I think maybe that type of music just doesn't really appeal to me as much and you know that's just I don't know that's the way my brain works like it's it's hard for me to get into things that are more groove oriented maybe or like funky let's say than hard rock or heavy metal in structure and yeah that's I don't know each to their own I suppose yeah I don't know I just I like I love all the Soundgarden stuff and I think this is the sweet spot for if you want to get into Soundgarden this would be the album I would send you to okay or no no I wouldn't I'd send you to Super Unknown Super Unknown is a better album it's more progressive and experimental but this one is my favorite because it's heavier Okay, yeah. so you did. You mentioned you did get to see them in, you're guessing, 2014. So that was after they obviously broke up and got back together. Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, I'm trying to remember what the tour was, if it was an anniversary or if it was, I can't remember. But it was an amazing show, yeah. I went, I did a trip to Montreal to see them. And man, they blew me away. They opened with, oh, I told you what they opened with. They closed with my favorite uh, Soundgarden song, which is Beyond the Wheel. And they closed with it, and it just blew me away. And then they went into, they played Beyond the Wheel, and when they finished the song, it went, the instruments all went into a bunch of feedback, and they all just, like, laid their instruments down and walked off the stage, and there was, like, feedback for, like, five minutes of deafening, and then it finally just cut out, and the lights came on. I was like, holy shit. (laughs) Blew my mind. It's a very uh, (laughs) Neil Young thing to do, circa 1990. Um, Okay, right, so we've got the five albums in the bag. One thing I will say is that, uh, obviously, I really enjoyed that discussion you know it was great talking about music and I love talking to people when they're speaking passionately about music that they love but I did get a sense of what Josh felt like when he had to listen to the likes of Skunkworks uh, <laughs> when you were doing Talking Maiden because <laughs> personally Soundgarden and um, Jane's Addiction aren't particularly the type of music that I normally listen to but I did listen to them but I, I, I can understand kind of where Josh was coming from when I was listening to Josh talking about that I was like ah give Skunkworks a chance it's not that bad but he was kind of like no I'm just not really into this you know it was a struggle it was a slog <laughs> it is hard to listen to albums that you're not really you know if you don't if you immediately dislike them to try to listen to them to try to change yeah. your own mind by listening to them it's kind of tough mm. to do well, I didn't have that negative mindset going in, but I, I did find it kind of very, very, like, I sound like such an old fart. I found it very, very guitar-driven when it was Soundgarden. And with um, Jane's Addiction, I don't know, it was just kind of like scatty or something. <laughs> yeah, I know. Jane's Addiction is, I, I don't know, I picked that one. I'll, I'll tell you something else about Jane's Addiction. So, Appetite for Destruction, uh, when I saw that video for Sweet Child of Mine, I bought, it made me want to pick up and buy a guitar. Uh, the song Three Days by Jane's Addiction, I actually bought a bass just to learn how to play that on bass. 
Wow, <laughs> Jesus. That's how much so, I love that song. <laughs> these albums were obviously massively influential on you. Although you, yeah. you don't seem to be a musician still nowadays. Uh, no, I dabble often, every now and then. You dabble? The kids go to bed and I'll have a couple of All right, okay. And, like, so you, so you are still yeah. playing? Yeah, occasionally. All right, but, All right. okay. Yeah. That's good to hear. It's always just been kind of a hobby. I never had a band on the go. But uh, so I picked those five albums. They all kind of stuck out to me as albums that like meant a lot to me for some reason. There was a bunch I was going to pick. Like obviously Master of Puppets was thrown around as like, but I think that's like everyone's go-to. So I didn't pick that one. I think that might be like the definitive heavy metal album. If someone asked me what is heavy metal, I'd be like, go listen to Master of Puppets. Fair, yeah. But I didn't pick that one. I also was almost picked Merciful Fate's album, Melissa, because I love that album. And I almost picked Black Sabbath, Sabbath Bloody Sabbath, or Heaven and Hell. Oh, so I, I threw I those around, those. but I was kind of like, <laughs> you're like, I wish you had to pick that instead of Jane's Addiction. <laughs> well, I think they're my two Black Sabbath albums from their respective eras. So Sabbath, Sabbath, obviously from Ozzy and Heaven and Hell from Dio. Uh, I would have loved to have talked about either of those albums, but this was also a great conversation. Yep. So, you know, uh, and even the ones, even the albums I didn't really like, you know, I learned a bit and obviously it was li- it was nice hearing your uh, personal history with those albums. So that's always good. Uh, okay. Um, I think we might wrap it up there. Is there anything exciting coming down the pipeline with the Night Demon Talk and Heavy Metal or Talk Night Demon Heavy Metal podcast? Um, we're doing a multiple episode on their live darkness album ah yes so the first yep. episode of that is up already yep and there's going to be a few more i'm going to go through it track by track it's going to be pretty awesome excellent yep. okay and so this is what i love about these uh doing these night demon episodes is like i can get access to some of the uh, isolated tracks like you know what i mean and i can pull out like guitar solos and drumming and stuff and highlight it so yep. this has been really fun i'm halfway into the next episode and it's a blast okay Excellent. So if you're not a Night Demon fan, check them out. And then after that, check out Nesbitt's Night Demon podcast. One final thing, actually, I forgot to say. So people often refer to Seventh Son of a Seventh Son as Iron Maiden's best album. Uh, or, else, or else they'll say something like the recent album is the best since Seventh Son. That's so commonly said. I, I, I assume yeah. you'll have noticed that as well. Yeah. What I wanted to ask you is, like, the worst kept secret in metal now is that Iron Maiden have recorded a new album. They've been spotted around the place in France and everybody knows what they're up to, but they just haven't said anything yet. Um, so do you think Iron Maiden can release an album as good as or better than Seven Son of a Seven Son in 2020 or 2021? Or do you think that ship has sailed? Whew, that's a big one. Um, <laughs> I don't know. How do you feel about like everything since Brave New World? I know. Okay. You know uh, what I mean? Ha- Just because I think that there, you're going to get something that's like new era maiden. Like the, the Book of Souls I thought was awesome. Okay, I think, I, just a quick a quick rundown, I think uh, Brave New World is my favourite album of all time. Uh, Dance of Death, good, but not as good as Seventh Son. Uh, a Matter of Life and Death, same bracket. Final Frontier, not a big favourite of mine. And Book of Souls, about as close as they've come to reaching the heights of Brave New World, but just a step off. Yeah, so I think you're going to get something, the quality of, I'm hoping, Book of Souls, which, you know, it's kind of, they're trying a few new things. It's kind of, you're going to get those long kind of epic maiden songs um i think that part of that is like steve harris the the production is like there's no one there to be like cut this down and steve harris is just indulging himself with these long songs over the last say 20 years steve harris's long form pedantry you might think. <laughs> yeah <laughs> so i think you're gonna get that but i never you never know right like who knows they could all yannick's really been stepping up in this era with like some of the better songs and adrian's there so you'll get a few 
you know, catchy rockers. You'll probably get the first two tracks being like catchy rockers that they'll open the mm. concert with. Yeah. I don't know. Personally, I think I don't think they have the the what it takes to release something as good as Seven Sun, but I would love to hear something that's as good as Book of Cells because that was an excellent album. So yeah, um, that's kind of okay. where my expectations are anyway. I don't think you're going to get another Power Slave out of them. That Definitely like, not. Yeah, never. <laughs> but I mean, that's a snapshot of a time that's long since passed. You know, they're not in bloody Compass Point Studios with dyed hair and spandex yeah. anymore. So like, you know, you're never going to get that again. Like, and, and that's you know, you should be happy that you had it the first time. I think yeah. some people, you know. Um, okay, so that's going to do it for uh, Feckin' Metal episode three. Thank you very much, Nesbit, for joining me on this episode. I really appreciate it. Um, so. Listen to Nesbitt on the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast and go back and listen to Talking Maiden if you are interested. Uh, and you should be, because what are you doing listening to this if you're not? Thanks very much. That's going to do it for this episode. And feck off. <laughs>